Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and this time round, I'm going to be talking about Babylon. Now, as it, it appears surprisingly frequently when it comes to pop culture. I'm going to do it largely through the lens of two things, interestingly sort of out at the same time, roughly, and both about the 1920s. One is the Damien Chazelle movie from 2022 called simply Babylon, and then there's Babylon Berlin, which is a TV show from Germany, which started in 2017 and is still ongoing. So there's definitely overlap between the two of those. But you can find the name Babylon everywhere. There's the sci-fi show Babylon 5, which is an excellent show from the 90s and into the 2000s about a space station in the far-flung future. There's another sci-fi movie, which I keep calling Babylon Berlin when I'm sitting there watching it. I keep calling it Babylon AD, which is a terrible 2008 movie, sci-fi movie, starring Vin Diesel and Michelle Yeoh. I have no idea why that one stuck in my head. But the point is, Babylon appears frequently, and I find that really weird because a lot of other ancient cities that don't exist anymore aren't a common go-to name when you're trying to name a TV show. After all, the peak of Babylonian civilization was about 3,000 years ago? What's that got to do with Berlin or Hollywood in the 20th century? The simple answer is nothing. But there is a definite connection to this, and I will be going into that when we get to the good history stuff. But I think I'm going to start with Mr. Chazelle's Babylon, and then I will pretty quickly move on to the far more interesting world of Babylon Berlin. Jem nearly did the Babylon AD thing there again. Anyway, I shouldn't have shared that with you, but hey, you get to see behind the, the curtain here. What can I say? So what was interesting is that Damien Chazelle, he did La La Land, and that obviously got Oscar attention. There's the famous one where it didn't win Best Picture. It went to Moonlight, but they accidentally said La La Land instead. Whoopsie. We lost, by the way, but, you know. You know. Guys, guys, I'm sorry. No, there's a, there's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Moonlight won. Come on, this is not a joke. 
This is not a joke. I'm afraid they read the wrong thing. You know, that was a whole thing in the Oscars. But the point is, Damien Chazelle is sort of seen as one of the... And I had this conversation on Twitter. I happened to see the movie Brazil recently. First time I'd seen it in like 30 years. The Terry Gilliam film from the 1980s. Kind of like a dark comedy version of 1984. Done in a fever dream. It's a brilliant, but definitely a quad taste movie. And I was sitting there going, nobody would be allowed to make something this weird and wacky nowadays and you know it's an absolute creative tour de force and professor john bleasdale who i sort of communicate with fairly regularly now he lectures in film studies in venice although he's a british guy he sort of said no but probably they would give money and indeed with babylon it's an example they probably would give damien chazelle if brazil hadn't been made in the 1980s and damien chazelle was in the hankering for in some alternative universe to do it now he would have it made. And Babylon, if you like, is an example of that. It stars Margot Robbie and Brad Pitt. And it's the period of Hollywood. It's set in Hollywood. Everybody's like a producer, director, actor, actress, etc. It's all in this time of the roaring 20s, where in theory alcohol has been banned in the era of prohibition, of course. But they're all drinking heavily and there's drugs and there's sex. And it's just wild craziness as... Hollywood is starting to transition into sounds. So this is the late 1920s, which is exactly the same time as Berlin, Babylon. In the movie, I mean, I can save you three hours. It's an ungodly mess, basically. Now, what was interesting is because of Damien's name and because of, you know, I've just mentioned some big hitting actors and they're not the only ones in the film. And yeah, money was spent on it. And Hollywood always loves a movie about Hollywood. So there was some serious Oscar buzz about Babylon before it actually came out. There were feelings that it might win Best Picture. There were feelings that Brad Pitt and Margot Robbie might be up there for the acting categories. And they weren't, for the record. And the reason for that is because once it came out, everybody went, oh, Lord. And there is a debate is this a bad film with some good scenes in it? Or is this a terrible film with some redeeming good bits in it? So it's hard to say. What is clearly obvious is it does not need to be this long. I mean, there is a point of view shot of an elephant pooing. A CGI elephant for the record, not a real elephant. No elephants were made to defecate because of this film. That's good news, I suppose. But that's something you just never need to see. And the whole thing is hyperkinetic, and it's almost like three hours of look at me, look at me, look at me. And like I said, there are some, some good moments in it, but it's like panning for gold. You get these little nuggets of gold, but there's an awful lot of just filler, aggregate, if you like, packed around it. Now, it's always visually interesting, but there are only so many times you can see a camera zoom in or out of a trumpet. And that's not the first time that's ever been done in a movie either. It's just screamingly indulgent. It's very loud. It's kind of headache-inducing. It's like Damien watched Wolf of Wall Street and thought, oh, I'm going to do that again, but set in the 1920s and didn't quite understand why Wolf of Wall Street actually worked. Please, please do not give any money to this movie or please do not waste three hours of your life. I warned you. On other occasions, I said, hey, you might want to give this a go. You know, trust me on this one. I am giving you no endorsement of this film whatsoever. And if you do end up seeing it and you feel it was a complete waste of your time, don't blame me. I told you so. And also, 
I'd be interesting to see if you agree it is truly that bad. But anyway, let's come on to the far more interesting, far more, uh, how can I put it, well put together, well produced, just simply better product that is Berlin Babylon. Now, warnings here, this has got subtitles. And I've got no idea where you are in the world and how you're going to see it. But at least in the UK, you've got to go onto Sky to see it on Sky Atlantic. I'm pretty sure you could get DVDs or buy sort of those streaming versions of it on Amazon or what have you. Or you might be able to see it on Stars or whatever. I don't know. So yeah, sorry, this is foreign language. But what's interesting is that whereas that would have been the absolute death knell of a thing when I was a teenager, for example, in the 80s and into the 90s, nowadays because of anime, nowadays because of Netflix, there is far, I mean, you know, if people sort of criticize the next generation coming through, but they are far more tolerant of foreign language films or TV shows and are willing to sit there through dubs. Now, I am not, I'll be up hand on heart, I'm not a huge fan of subtitled TV shows. A movie, two hours, fine. But if you're watching a whole TV show, Sometimes it does feel like you're reading the novelization of a thing because people are talking quite a lot in it. But if you can get over that little hurdle, and let's face it, we've now had Parasite winning Best Picture and other sort of signs, you know, you're all quiet on the Western Front doing well. You've got Life is Beautiful back in the day as the first time I think a foreign language movie won Best Actor for Roberto Benigni. There have been signs that this is definitely improving. It's going in the right direction, but... No doubt that once we're into the 2020s, shall we say, maybe a little bit earlier, there's just this huge appetite for it's good. Doesn't matter what language it's in. Now, I've already done an episode on Dark, and that didn't get a particularly huge hit rate in it, unlikely to. But trust me, if you want to see a German language thing, the very first German language TV show that Netflix commissioned was Dark, and it's an absolutely brilliant sci-fi series. So I thoroughly recommend it. Now, Netflix did not pay for Berlin Babylon, but what it is, set in 1929, I haven't actually got up to date with season four yet, but it's moving slowly in time. It's not like each series jumps forward a year. So yes, in the background, we do have the slow rise of Nazism, but it's it's very much in the back. You know, most of this is happening in 1929, leading up to the stock market crash. So things haven't actually got really bad quite yet. And yet it is showing. It's a brilliant, I believe it is the most expensive European TV production that's not in English. So a lot of money has been spent on this. And some of the scenes, it's like, yeah, that's just a great shot. Everything is period appropriate. It's 1920, so you might literally have 100 actors walking around wearing period clothing, with a tram going on in the background. I mean, maybe that CGI, if it is, it's very good. And you've got, like, the classic Art Deco fronts to cafes and shops and things like that. Money has been spent on this, and you really get the feeling that you are looking at Berlin almost a century ago. And it's not just endlessly, oh, I happen to be a member of this small up-and-coming party. Oh, what are they called? The Nationalist Socialists. Yes, Hitler's got some interesting things to say. If I'm going to give it a criticism, it's the fact that it's extremely well done, but fundamentally, apart from the fact that it's in German, 
you've kind of seen it all before. It's about a detective. So the detective is a guy called Gerion, Gerion Rath, and he is played by a Volker Bruch. Hope I'm pronouncing these things right. He is a World War I veteran, as many men were in 1929. But he's kind of got the classic dark past, and you find out more about that, and you eventually find out that he was serving with his brother, and it was it was complicated, to put it bluntly, but he's clearly got some kind of trauma, shell shock, something like that, so he's having to take... He's trying to hide it, and trying to sort of hide his shakes from it, his nervous shakes, so he's having to take drugs to sort of suppress that, but he doesn't want his colleagues to know about it again have you seen that kind of character the good detective that's kind of worn out with a dark past but he's still good at his job you've seen that a bunch of times before also you got people wearing trilbies meeting in dark alleyways occasionally pulling a gun a lot of the guns are european you know occasionally you get someone pulling out a luger which is not what you tend to see in noir or neo-noir from america but yeah i mean there is the ubiquitous browning 1911 because a that's age-appropriate, but it is that classic semi-automatic pistol that you all know instantly. That kind of rectangular shape to it, and its barrel. So you've got Wrath, the detective, and it's interesting, you know, you sit there listening to it in German, and I now know that Kommissar is Inspector in German, so the Commissars of the Russian forces, I presume, again, Commissar, we all know it's a political officer nowadays, that's what we associate that word with, but probably... The context at the time, in the 1930s, in the Soviet Union, was deliberately let... It was more bland. It was more like an administrative name, which has grown to mean something so much more dangerous and deadly. And then you've got Charlotte Ritter, played by Liv Lisa Fries. Charlotte is, in my wife and I's opinion, the most interesting character. She comes from a profoundly poor family. They're all incredibly down on their luck. And she is just trying to earn money to keep the family's head above water. There's a grandfather who's completely infirmed. There's a mother who's bedridden. There's this complete layabout. She's, she's basically got two sisters. And one of them is married and her husband and his mate are complete layabout in there's domestic violence. I mean, it's, it's just the place they live in is utter squalor. And what does she do? She goes out every day looking for work. And she stands there. This is a beautiful scene in, in the first series of these just this clump of women just standing there finding out what administrative duties are there in the police station today. And it's like, who wants this? Who wants that? And early on, this is not a huge spoiler, if you like, they say there's a job, it pays well, but you're not going to want to do it. And sort of the women are all looking at each other suspiciously. It's like, what is it? It's like, basically, you need to look at murder photos and put them into different categories. Like, this is gunshot death, this is a hanging, that kind of thing. So you're doing nothing but looking at grim photos all day long. But Charlotte needs the money, so she starts doing it. And in the end, she befriends this other woman who says, I, I couldn't care less about those sorts of photos. And so she subcontracts to this other woman. So the other woman gets a bit of money doing it. And it allows Charlotte, she earns a bit of money out of the deal, even though it's kind of under her name, but it allows Charlotte to go off and do other things as well. She really wants to be the first woman working for the police detectives, which is a big deal. That's never happened before. But in the evenings, she works in a bar. She gets paid to dance with guys. But also, there does seem to be, how can I put this politely, some funny business going on, which is, for the record, in Germany, if you're certified, that's not illegal, you're not breaking the law or anything. Obviously, it's an extremely dangerous pastime, 
particularly in the 1920s, when contraception was nowhere near as good as it was in the 21st century. Yeah, you just feel for her. I mean, there are times when she's just falling asleep at a table or whatever because she's getting almost no sleep and she comes back to pay the rent and all she does is get grief from the family. She's just a really interesting character. Again, we've probably seen people like this before, but maybe not quite so hard on their luck and perhaps not so much. Again, Jem's trying to be nice. Good time girl slash police detective. I mean, she's not actually a police detective, but she is doing some detecting for Wrath. So you can tell it's a really interesting character, lots going on with her, but there are other characters as well. You know, Wrath sort of got, at least in the first series, has basically got a partner. He's just this incredibly heavy-set, brooding, dangerous, sort of corrupt police officer. Well, I mean, he is corrupt, but he's one of these ones where it's like, He's not completely wild or out of control. He has his own morality lines that he's willing to play. So what it does a brilliant job of is just showing you what Germany was like in the 1920s. Forget about the Nazis. There are people on the streets protesting all the time. So I did a bit of this in my book. I did a fair amount of this, actually, in my book, Silent Crossroads. Now, I, I did an episode about it because you can get it. I mean, sadly, my novels I've had to self-publish with my historical works. They all get to be published through a couple of different publishers. But with Silent Crossroads, I had to go onto Amazon. I'm so sorry about this. So if you want to read it, you can get it as an ebook at the moment. For some reason, you can't get it as hard copy right now, but I'm looking into that. But recently, I got it into an audiobook. Thanks to the editor of this podcast, Greg, Greg Chapman. Thank you very much. Oh my God, it's a dream. And you can listen to that on Audible. You can get a free subscription or like a free trial if you want. Or there are lots of other Audible type apps and websites which you can go onto and it's being placed on there as well. If you don't like Amazon or don't want to give them any money or details or what have you, it is in other places too. As the thunder grew closer, the noise changed into the unmistakable sound of high explosive shells smashing into the ground, gouging out great craters of soil. The shells were falling like rain, in a barrage that seemed to come from all directions. The monster of war roared again and again outside the brick barn. The earth shook and the timbers trembled. Dirt and plaster showered the sleeping men as they roused themselves to consciousness and leapt groggily out of their beds. But what I wanted to show in that book, basically it takes a British soldier from World War One into World War Two, but in the interwar years he falls in love with a German woman and settles down in Germany and, and raises a family with this going on in the background. So he's basically an outsider seeing Germany change. Here we've got the insiders, the Germans seeing Germany change, and one of the key areas going across multiple seasons is the fact that you have the Soviet Union, which is trying to spread its revolution. And this is something that perhaps people don't quite understand about Putin. People have said he's like the Soviet Union. He certainly wants to try and recreate the Soviet Union, but he doesn't want to recreate communism. But the difference here is Putin wants power for the sake of power. Now, you can absolutely argue that that was basically what Stalin was doing, and I, I hear you on that. Stalin was not a nice guy. I'm not trying to cut him any slack of any description. But he came from this revolution, this communist revolution. They were selling a political agenda. And it was part of that, started with Lenin. It's like, okay, we have captured Russia, the Russian Empire, which became the Soviet Union, 
but we're going to spread this. We are obliged to spread this. This is why you get places like Cuba eventually falling to communism and indeed China falling to, to communism as well. And indeed in the 1960s, you started having these satellite countries, places like Hungary and Czechoslovakia at, at that time, which basically they had, in theory, their own governments, occasionally being overthrown by the Soviet Union because the grounds was, because we are the genesis of this communist revolution, we have the right to overthrow any country that's a communist country that's not doing it our way, the way that we are approving it. It's almost like the communist version of Catholic heresy. You're a heretic, we can take away your power. It's a fascinating idea, but this is one of the things I point out in my book and generally isn't well known, Germany, between 1919 and 1939, was just this swirling mass. Yes, it was the era of the Weimar Republic up until 1933 when Hitler takes over, but you have about 15 years of democracy that starts off with a civil war. You've got the Freikorps, basically paramilitary groups, soldiers returning from the front line, trying to put down these communist uprisings. You also got two financial disasters. So 1929, we're in between them. We've had the hyperinflation, but once you get the stock market crash of 29, you've got another economic crisis going on in Germany. So this is all going to go kind of crazy. But the other thing that was also going on is, again, there were still multiple protests, multiple organizations of communists backed by the Soviet Union, in essence, causing trouble. What you see in the first series, and again, this goes on into the second series, is in May of 1929, there was this big protest by workers. There's this huge strike action and marching. Tens of thousands of people were involved in this in Berlin and across Germany. And the police were incredibly heavy handed. They started shooting into the crowd. Now, there's, there's no I'm not going to say that that was valid in any way. It's absolutely terrible and awful. That was, that was appalling. And you see this in the actual show. And you see how the police are trying to cover it up and, and trying to sort of make out that there was violence on both sides. This is a, a phrase that we've heard in, in more recent times in America. There were good people on both sides or there were bad people on both sides. It's like, no, sometimes there's the good guys and the bad guys. And if the police, who are there to protect society... Now, obviously, you have the right to disrupt an illegal gathering or something like that, but you don't have the right to start shooting into unarmed civilians. And indeed, dozens died, hundreds were wounded. This is a real thing, and it is reproduced with astonishing accuracy in the show. And this is the thing, the attention to detail, the clear love, and also budget to actually make it happen is there. This is beautifully shot. If there is one deliberately anachronistic thing which really reaches its peak in season two, I am going to assume that Henk Handlugton, I'm going to hope I'm close to the pronunciation there, Henk Handlugton, who is the writer, creator, and director, not of every episode, but a number of the episodes, I'm going to call him Henk from now on, I'm going to assume he's a big Brian Ferry fan. If you don't know who Brian Ferry is, he was a singer in the 1980s. He wasn't pop. He was kind of a bit classier. There was, a, there was this whole group of almost crooners, almost borderline jazz or soul. It's the sort of music you would play as some sort of bar was being shut up at sort of one o'clock in the morning as the chairs being put on the tables and the smoke's clinging to the ceiling and all that kind of thing. That's when you would hear someone like Brian Ferry 
or indeed someone like Sade, George Michael's stuff from the Faith album as well, sort of very much sounds like that, that kind of tunes, clearly influenced by that kind of soul and jazz from the 30s. So while it in itself is influenced from this era, they literally use Brian Ferry songs and lyrics. But what's clever about it is they don't have any of the synthesizers because that would be completely anachronistic. So if you know Brian Ferry, you're going, hang on, I, isn't that Avalon, which came out 50 years later from a different country and a different language? But it is re-orchestrated to be played by a jazz group and also put into German. However, in season two, this is the the dumbest of spoilers, there is a very big ballroom scene where the singer is Brian Ferry and he's singing it to a like new orchestration, but he is singing in English. Then he switches to German because Brian Ferry's awesome. And so, yeah, that that's... That, there's no reason for that to be there whatsoever, but it's Babylon Berlin's thing. And I'm assuming that the only reason why it's there is Hank really likes Brian Ferry. It, it's your thing. You do you. But when the show's in full swing, everyone's in the wild. I stepped in chorus lines me not forgetting. Just jumping in to say, this is still Gem, to remind you, Hollywood and History, my new book, which in essence was inspired by this podcast. So if you like this podcast, you'll like the book. Maybe get it for somebody for their Christmas present. Maybe get it for yourself because you just want a good read. It looks at how Hollywood has portrayed history. What have they got right? What have they got wrong? And why? Some behind-the-scenes looks at some really famous movies and a chance for you to discover perhaps some new movies that you're going to sit there and make your best and most fun. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What we've got also going on, as I pointed out with Charlotte, she keeps going to this club over and over again. And if you know anything about this era, it is about this time that cabaret is set. And so there's this kind of decadent Weimar Republic. And so, again, I guess like Babylon, the movie by Damien Chazelle, there is nudity, there is sex, there is drugs, there is lots of alcohol, wild, crazy parties. I'm going to say Germany just generally has a reputation of being more open about nudity. And I'm going to say there's more full frontal gentlemen running around, flapping around, Jem says. Who are misses? Rather than the ladies. So it's all fairly equal there and okay fair enough but yeah the germans just they have more of a naturist movement than other countries they just like getting naked okay and therefore nudity is not such a big deal in germany as it is in other places particularly america and they play into that that they are i guess proud of their fundamental culture cultural touch points touchstones the other thing about it is the editing around it and some of the deliberate, you get these kind of zoom-ins to black and zoom-outs from black, which is very much like the German expressionist films of the 1920s. I'm talking about, you know, absolute classics like The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and not Calgary, which a lot of people think it is, but no, it's The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is a silent film, black and white, obviously, from Germany. Nosferatu, that came out in 1922, I actually saw that on the South Bank on a full screen with a talk before it. That's the scary Dracula movie, but Dracula... It is a clear rip-off of Bram Stoker's Dracula, but the thing that's very different is the actual creature itself, Nosferatu, looks incredibly spindly and evil and leech-like, and, and he himself looks nothing like Dracula that was described by Stoker. And then if we were going to go into another classic from the, the sort of silent era, let's do Fritz Lang's Metropolis as well. There are aesthetics and editing choices, very deliberate, and particularly the way they actually do the credits on the show are very much like these 1920s classic German movies and a reminder of the incredibly vibrant German cinema scene of the 1920s that was to be obviously crushed by the Nazis in the 1930s. So what you've got here is just this really good show. Like I say, I'm sorry, it's subtitled. I think a dub would be awful. And I'm obviously clearly enjoying it. And I definitely give you a recommendation to check this out as well. 
But I've been talking a lot about different types of Babylons, didn't really spend much time on the sci-fi one, Babylon 5 or anything like that. But what I'm now going to do is, of course, give you the history and explain fundamentally why does everybody keep using Babylon, meaning sort of decadent, wild and crazy? We know exactly where that comes from. Now, earlier on, I made reference to the Soviet Union taking power away like Catholics would do that to a heretic. And it therefore may not surprise you to know that our idea of Babylon being corrupt and crazy comes from the Bible, specifically from the book of Revelation, where Babylon is being used as a word that is basically interchangeable with utter corruption, decadence, the downfall of morality, of humanity. There is the whore of Babylon specifically referenced in the book of Revelation. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. The book of Revelation almost didn't make the cut into the Bible. There was a huge debate about it. The Council of Nicaea in the 3rd century AD by a bunch of people who never met Jesus or any of the disciples or anything like that. These church elders basically were put together by the Roman Empire, initially by Constantine wanting to use Christianity as a way to glue the ailing Roman Empire together. Let's glue it all together with the faith. But then there needs to be a conversation about, well, what goes where? Which bits do we include? The most debate was around the book of Revelation. And certainly, if you're going to compare that, the last book of the New Testament to the rest of it, it is a fever dream compared to almost any other part of any other book of the Bible. It's just weird. But the thing is, it's it's cloaked in symbolism. One of the things that you have all heard is 666 is the number of the devil. Now, Behind that is, in English, we sometimes say A has a value of 1, B has a value of 2. So in other words, where it fits in the alphabet, we pretend it's got a numerical value. Now, that's just artificially put in there. However, in Hebrew, every letter has automatically a numerical value. So you can literally do maths with the Hebrew alphabet. And indeed, if you get 666 and break it down, Cutting a long story short, you get the name Nero. So in other words, this is being written at the time that Nero is persecuting Christians. Now, if we start writing down the name Nero, we could get into serious trouble with the authorities. So instead, we're going to cloak it in a numerical code. And it's the same thing with Babylon. Babylon was a city that existed in the first century AD, but it was very much past its prime. But Babylon was famous. I'll come on to a little bit about Babylon in a moment. But what they were actually hinting at is just as 666 is a reference to Nero, Babylon was the code word for Rome. Rome's where the power is and the Rome is where they're persecuting Christians and we don't like Rome. Again, literally writing that in the book would have led to some kind of religious genocide, even harsher than the one that actually happened to the early Christians. So really what they're doing is attributing a completely unrelated name to a hidden enemy, if you like. And yet this is stuck. This is echoed down the millennia, really, because you may get something like Rastafarianism, which is obviously a religion in and of itself, where Zion is the good place and Babylon is the bad place. They have specifically picked up on this from the Bible. Clearly, there's a, a relationship there. And as I said, even today, we've got things with the word Babylon in the title basically being shorthand immediately for this is decadent and is it even worth saving? 
like the shows I've just been talking about or movies I've just been talking about earlier. And so it's still there thousands of years later. That's how effective that bit of iconography is. Now, the reality is that Babylon was one of the first cities. The actual first major urban conurbation seems to have been Uruk, which is where we get the name Iraq, and Babylon is in a very similar area to that. And so Babylon was, it wasn't the first city, but it's likely to have been the first city to have had a population larger than 100,000. And we are talking about more than 4,000 years ago. Places like ancient Rome and ancient Greece were a thousand or more years away from being created. They're just sheep farmers in those areas. Whereas in Babylon, you actually have a walled city with tens of thousands. The archaeologists have extrapolated that probably at its peak, it got up to about a quarter of a million population. And so this was an epicenter of trade, of art, of technology, and so on and so forth, agricultural innovation, and so on and so forth. So it's just an amazing place. Indeed, one of the seven wonders of the world is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, and yet that's probably the only wonder that didn't actually exist. There's no evidence of it being being a thing in Babylonian text, and Babylonian texts are cuneiform, and that's the oldest writing in the world, so they would have mentioned a wonder of the world, and they don't. It seems to possibly be a confusion of perhaps some of these stepped rice paddy fields further out into Asia. That's just a guess, though. But compared to the Colossus of Rhodes, the Pyramids, and the Lighthouse of Alexandria, and so on and so forth, all those other ones we know actually existed. The Hangarns of Babylon are the only one which seems to have been a legend, a myth. So Babylon has an incredibly long pedigree. However, you do get invasions of the Middle East from that area. Now, actually, they're from different civilizations. It could have been the Babylonians. It could have been the Assyrians or indeed the Persians. At one point, the Persian Empire was the world's largest empire and Babylon was not the capital, but it was a major city in that empire. And these empires kept smashing into the Middle East at the time when the Old Testament was being written about. So there wasn't necessarily a huge amount of love for Babylon then. And then in moving into the New Testament, well, we could talk about Babylon and how terrible it was because it wasn't owned by Rome and it was just such a famous place where evil, from the perspective of the Israelites, had emanated from in the past, so let's do it again. But to give you an idea, it was also a place that was conquered by Alexander the Great. We're talking about the 4th century BC, so about 350, 400 years before the New Testament was being written. So again, you've got the West influencing Babylon. Indeed, it became Alexander's capital city. It's where he died and where his empire split up. Babylon keeps appearing in history, but also in terms of the equivalent of pop culture of the first century AD. So therefore, by saying Babylon, everybody knows what it is, but also everybody kind of knows the stories around it. And therefore, those biases are being preserved and then amplified by the Bible which then sort of spreads along the next two millennia of civilization, taking us all the way up to Damien Chazelle filming elephant pooping and a far more thoughtful intelligence drama coming from Germany called Babylon Berlin, which is still going, by the way. It hasn't finished. We'll see where it goes. We'll see if it keeps the quality up all the way through. But certainly what I've seen so far, like I say, you have seen people in trilbies 
smoking suspiciously in alleyways in a bunch of other movies, but you haven't seen it in German, okay? And also, you can kind of see where some of this is going. There's a sense of sadness to the whole thing. The Weimar Republic, we all know, will fall. I guess a bit like Babylon, a bit like Rome as well. So with that in mind, something a bit more unusual this week, and or this time around, I should say. Don't forget, we're doing two a week now. So please click subscribe, and then you get you won't miss an episode. But also find me on Twitter at Gemdaducci. Tell me what you thought. But also I regularly tweet out what this next episode's all about. So if you could spread that, retweet it, or tell a friend, tell an actual human being about this podcast just to sort of help us increase and grow those numbers. Thank you very much, and another episode coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.